Hi, this is Adam Amin, play-by-play announcer for ESPN. For a trip to the national championship. Ogumbawale. Good! One second remaining. No timeouts for UConn. Williams down the floor. Samuelson. Notre Dame with the win. Off to the title game. Ogumbawale for the win. LeBron with five, across the timeline with four, LeBron on the left wing, drives, runner for the win, bank it in, LeBron James delivers at the buzzer, and the Cavaliers win game three, 105 to 103, as they mob LeBron James under the rim to the left, here at the kill. And you're listening to The Bridge. Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's life like as a sports broadcaster on the game's biggest stages? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 115 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, July 11, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America, Monday through Friday, with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. And if you're in the mood for a more sports-oriented sports talk show, check out the New Report, Old Report with my pal Al Renato, which airs Monday nights at 8 Eastern Time, live on Sports Radio America as well, with replay on Tuesday, also at 8 Eastern Time. Now, loyal listeners of this show know that now we usually transition into a couple segments before getting into the interview with this week's guest and closing out the show. Well, it's time to change things up. Oh, say change it up. Change it up. We'll still close out the show with a movie review this week with the film Hereditary, but first... Let's get down to business. This week's guest is Adam Amin. He's a play-by-play commentator for ESPN for just about every sport and every stage imaginable and has been doing so since 2011 at the age of 24. 
He got his start at the bottom, calling minor league baseball games, working as sports director in Spirit Lake, Iowa, and dabbling in Division II before getting a foot in the door at the four-letter network doing tape-delayed college football games for ESPNU. That transitioned to other sports like college volleyball, wrestling, baseball, and softball, then bigger assignments that included the NBA playoffs and primetime college football games. Recently, you also heard his voice call the thrilling last-second victories of the Notre Dame women's basketball team en route to winning this past national championship. LeBron's playoff buzzer beater against the Raptors, the Softball College World Series, and as the voice of the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. As that brief introduction shows, Adam is incredibly versatile in the sports broadcasting world, has been fortunate enough to be behind the microphone for several incredible sports moments, and I was fortunate enough to get a chance to chat with him about all of it. From getting his start in the industry and working his way up in it, any pressure felt along the way doing so at a young age and on the platform he was doing it on, the preparation and the grind of it all, and a couple quick-hitting questions to close things out that led to some pretty great stories as well. You can follow Adam on Twitter. He's at Adam Amin. That's A-D-A-M-A-M-I-N. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Adam Amin. He's a play-by-play commentator for ESPN for just about every sport and every stage imaginable at some point throughout the year. Adam, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? Everything's good, John. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and it's a pleasure to get to chat with you about your career. And before we get into what you do do and what you've already done, I wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit to help get us there and ask you the typical question that I'm sure you've been asked a hundred times. When you knew that you wanted to get into sports broadcasting, or at least specifically get into play-by-play? I think really when I got to college, uh, I didn't, I'm not, I'm not like a lot of guys who, you know, knew that they were going to do this when they were little kids. Although I, I do have the typical story of sitting in front of my, you know, my, my Sega Genesis and calling play by play for whatever sports game I was playing or sitting in front of a Cubs game on TV and turning the sound down and calling the plays to myself. But, uh, I, I certainly didn't think that this was going to be a thing and, uh, I never pictured it as a thing uh, until I really got to college. Uh, I had messed around with broadcasting a little bit in high school, uh, doing uh, football games and basketball games and volleyball matches on the local public access station. And a friend of mine, uh, a few years older than me, uh, that I had gone to high school with, uh, was going to, or was at already, at Alparese uh, University in Indiana. And uh, his name's Ken Levicka, and he's still in the business today. He's the voice of the Florida Atlantic Owls and still doing play-by-play and still working at an ESPN station down in West Palm Beach, Florida, and a tremendous broadcaster and great friend. And he said, uh, you know, I don't know what your plans are, but if you want to do this, if you want to maybe pursue it or think about pursuing broadcasting, like, come on, come on over. Like, I, I would love to have you and we, we can put you on air. And if it's something you want to do, I mean, great. If not, no big deal. And it sounded appealing. It sounded really appealing to me at the time. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life or with my education. And I was kind of a jack of all trades, master of nothing in high school. And I figured, all right, let's give it a shot. You know, I, I didn't really want to go to business school. Uh, I didn't really want to go to go into marketing, even though those are the things I thought I was going to pursue. Um, so I, I gave Valpo a shot and Ended up going into the radio station my first day there and finding the advisor, who's now one of my closest friends. Uh, and, and I said, Ken Levicka told me to come here. What do I do next? And that was, uh, 
that was how it got started. And when I started doing it and started focusing on it and really getting into the nuts and bolts of what it meant to be uh, an on-air uh, broadcaster in sports specific, specifically, I thought, you know what, I like this and I want to see where it takes me. So that's how it started for me. Well, you started from the bottom to quote Drake. So I can put that hashtag somewhere and maybe people listening to his <laughs> new album will stop here too. So that was a good plug there. But you did minor league baseball games in the independent league. You were a sports director in Spirit Lake, Iowa for a time. You went back to the minor leagues in the Atlantic League and Somerset, New Jersey. Freelance in Division Two, color analyst for Valpo here and there as well, your alma mater. How important were those experiences, not only for the reps that it gave you, but for learning the grind, in a sense, of what would be in store in the industry if you were to pursue it as well? I think, first and foremost, it, it taught me a lot about the mechanics of all of it, uh, how to go about it properly, how to pace yourself, um, I mean, especially the minor league baseball reps. I mean, it, it is impossible uh, to get that type of experience anywhere else. When you're doing 140 games in 150 some odd days, uh, it, I mean, it is it is impossible to get that type of experience. Three hours a night on your own in a booth, calling a game, calling a game, weaving stories, uh, calling the action in front of you, being around a team. Uh, and then again, doing it every single night, just about, uh, it, it's really hard to replicate that type of experience. So that was super important for me, not necessarily to just get better, but it's, you, you learn how to suck at it. Uh, you know, like, like you have to kind of learn how to be bad at this almost, uh, to, before you can really figure out how to get good at it. And, and I think that's, that's a fair assessment. I, I really feel like you almost learn more about what not to do what's uncomfortable for you. And, and it differs for, for, for different broadcasters. I mean, it's, it's each his own and, and to everybody, uh, everybody who does this, there's a different feel and a different pace and something that feels organic or inorganic. You have to learn the, those things too, not just the, you know, the, the improvement of fundamentals and mechanics. So I think that was part of it. And then, like you said, the kind of grind of it all, you know, learning how to balance, working for a minor league baseball team and then trying to jam in a, a broadcast at, at the right time somewhere else, or, you know, how to fit in a television deal and then flying back, you know, after a weekend and on the same day, flying in to go do another baseball game and being on top of the preparation for all of it or doing a high school football game on a Friday, a college football game on a Saturday and, and, and doing, you know, a, a hoops game on a Monday and, and just kind of learning all these things and how to budget your time and, how to really lock into the preparation process. That was really helpful, especially when I got to ESPN and I was doing, you know, my first couple of years, I was doing a volleyball game on a Wednesday and I was doing a college football game on a Saturday and then maybe doing, uh, you know, college baseball in the spring and then a college softball game or when I'm doing, you know, multiple basketball games in a week during the winter time. That was really helpful to learn how to manage those, those moments and how to budget time and, and how to lock into that process. So uh, it was super helpful, maybe even in ways I didn't recognize at the time, but all those things were tremendously important in trying to get me to a point where I felt comfortable handling the workload that I, that I handle now. For the minor league baseball side of things, did it help that 
you were the same age or at least a similar age to, I'm assuming, most of the players on the teams that you were covering, it being Atlantic League and Horizon League, maybe some younger guys, as far as your relationship with them, being able to get stories from them, being able to tell those stories on air, did the age gap help you in a way, at least in that early going, to make things a little bit easier? Well, it was interesting because it was a good mix. You know, like the minor leagues I was working in, when you're, when you're doing independent ball, you're going to get a mix of guys. Uh, unlike where if you're in single A, everybody's going to be between the ages of, you know, 18 and 23. Uh, for me, it was, it, it was a little, a little different because when you're in the Atlantic League, it's, uh, it's what I call the launch pad league. There are a lot of guys that got cut from double A and triple A teams. So they're a little bit further along in their careers. So they jump into an independent league trying to get picked out by a scout to go sign with another major league organization and hopefully work themselves back up. Uh, you got a lot of ex big leaguers in that league uh, that are, you know, either trying to make it back or maybe they're towards the end of their playing careers and they had a good run in the big leagues and they're just hanging around trying to play a little bit more ball before they, you know, they, they call it a career. So you got a great mix of young guys, guys around my age, and then a bunch of veteran guys, you know, guys up to the age of 40. And I remember Ron Vallone who had played for, I want to say 11 or 12 major league teams finished his career with uh, with Somerset when I was there. And he was a tremendously nice guy and had all these great stories about playing with different players and being around the major leagues and pitching against this guy and facing this Hall of Famer. And and just to hear those stories, yeah, that you, you learn how to get that out of some guys and you learn how to deal with different personalities. Uh, you know, some guys want to talk, some guys don't. Uh, some guys you have to talk to, some guys you have to be nimble around. Uh, some guys you can just walk right up to them and start chatting, and it, and it gives you a little bit of a sense of people, too. And for me, who you know, I wasn't always the most outgoing guy, for me, it really forced me out of my comfort zone early. And as I got more comfortable with all these different personalities, I learned how to, how to interact and, and how to approach people and, and, and a lot of different things outside of just broadcasting, just people skills in general. So I think that experience was so multi-layered that – you know, that really helped me out. And I was looking for that. You know, I, I was really seeking those types of experiences and that type of knowledge. And I was happy to have that. 26 months after college at 24, you're working for ESPN. And two months after that, you end up on air with them. How did that end up happening? And what were some of your first responsibilities with them? Yeah, I, uh, I went through a, a long process with, uh, you know, the guy who was representing me, who is you know, still my agent to this day and, and just kind of waiting things out. You know, I would keep updating my resume tape as I got more television events, you know, doing freelance work, whether it's at the division two level or doing division one tennis or, or softball or division two basketball, whatever it may be. I just kept plugging along high school, volleyball. Uh, anything I could get my hands on in terms of the, the TV side, along with doing minor league baseball, along with going to, you know, going to the little Caesars bowl with my buddy, Joe Davis and us sitting in the auxiliary booth during a bowl game between Toledo and FIU and recording ourselves doing a broadcast or me going to, uh, uh, going up to Milwaukee at the Bradley center and, and finding a spot on radio row and recording a broadcast to myself. So I could use that for resume tape when the bucks were playing the Hawks in a meaningless game. Uh, in April. So just to, to do all those things and try to keep the resume tape fresh and, and try to sound as professional as possible and keep the best stuff at the forefront of it. Uh, and all that time, my agent kept, uh, kept kind of holding off and saying, hold on, be patient. 
and, and it became kind of a waiting game. It was, you know, hey, ESPN might be interested in you. Okay, great. They might have five games for you. Okay, awesome. Uh, a week later, hey, you know what? They, they might actually have 10 games for you. Okay, let's sign it. No, 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 no. Let's hold off. Let's, hold, let's, let's wait a bit and, and see what happens. And eventually it got to a point where some of their personnel was leaving. They needed some slots filled. And, you know, the timing worked out great. I, I, I don't think – I think it's okay. I don't think there's a statute of limitations on this. But, you know, Todd Harris got to the end of a deal at ESPN, and he opted to go to NBC. And he was calling, you know, late night tape delayed college football on ESPNU and calling some college hoops and some, you know, college wrestling championships and things of that sort. And they needed somebody to fill those gaps. So it went from five to 10 to 20 to, hey, ESPN might have 45 events for you and you might have a full time deal with them. And I think they're willing to offer you a contract. And this is without ever having any regional, real regional television experience outside of a few freelance opportunities. This was just grinding it out and trying to put together as as good of a resume tape as possible. And I obviously having some good people in my corner and then having some people that were willing to take a risk on me. You know, Dan Steer, who's over at NBC now, you know, was a longtime producer and, and eventually coordinating producer at ESPN. And, and he had no business taking a chance on me. And for some reason, he said, yeah, let, let's give this guy a shot. You know, he seems like he can, he can handle it. But we won't, we're not going to throw him on, a, on the national championship or anything like that. But let's, let's throw him on some games. And I think he can help us. And that, that was all I wanted. I wanted to just contribute. So July of 2011, I got a phone call. And it was my agent saying, your life's going to be a little different now, man. You're, you're working for ESPN full time. And I just, you know, I, I just cried. I, I wept. I mean, it was it was a really emotional moment. And and listen, it's not. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not dumb. I don't. I don't uh, think myself some kind of journeyman who, you know, was was in it for 20 years and finally got his big break. No, I'm, I was a lot luckier than a lot of other people. You know, there are there are a lot of great announcers out there that that didn't get the shot as quickly as I was lucky enough to, or or maybe still are looking for that that one big break, but. You know, I, 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 there, there's plenty of people out there that could be doing this job right now. So I try not to take that for granted. And I think that's why it was so emotional at the time. And it still is. It's still a blessing to be able to do this. So that was that was my initial reaction when when I got the gig. Did you feel any added pressure to try and prove yourself just because of how young you were at the time or even because of now, I know there's been more discussion through a couple of different podcasts and through how the world and how sports media has been changing that you and a small handful of others represent a smaller minority when it comes to either Muslims or Pakistani descent. I know Adnan Verk is one of those gentlemen, one of your close mm-hmm. friends. People now yep. put you into that category where younger broadcasters will approach you and, and say, hey, how can I break into that industry? Not even so much for the work aspect, but just getting through the race aspect, the way different things have been happening in sports media. Was there any added pressure for either of those things when you're trying to just put on a good broadcast that late at night? At the time, it wasn't necessarily the, the race or the minority aspect of it. It was the youth. It was definitely that. I was definitely worried that I was going to be exposed as some punk kid who, you know, knew the right guy and got tossed a great deal and, and I had no business being there. And, and, and maybe, you know what, in some ways that was true. 
maybe I didn't have any business being there because I was I wasn't at the level that was worthy of I don't I personally don't think and maybe maybe I'm being hard on myself or I'm trying to come off as sound and humble about it but if I really look back I don't think I was at the level I should have been at at least for football because I I had never called a football game on television until August 26 2011 when I did a high school game on ESPN too and I I I still remember just being petrified going into that game going, I don't know how to do this yet. Like you can throw me on a volleyball match, throw me on a basketball game, baseball, softball. I'll, I'll feel great. I've done plenty of those and I've done a lot of those sports and I covered a ton of it and I felt comfortable walking in and trying to make something happen there. But I'll tell you, man, I uh, walking into football, that was not my area. And, and I don't know if I was, at the level I should have been, but I, I try to muscle my way through it. And again, you have good people around you. You got good producers. You got a very ca- competent and capable analyst next to you who knows what they're talking about. You lean on those people and you, you try to stay conservative and, and feel it out. And that first year of calling football games was a real feeling out process. And, and you know what? I, I know it wasn't the highest profile games, you know, 1030 Eastern time on ESPNU. And a lot of those games are tape delayed and, and only seen online until, you know, late at night. But you know what? I'm glad, I'm glad that that's how it worked out because I wanted to be in a position where I could learn a little bit. And I think they put me, the folks at ESPN, whether they meant to or not, put me in a spot to, to fail a little bit in a good way. I mean that in a, in a way that, that allowed me to have some chances to fail without the stakes being so high. And I learned a ton. And when you just get the reps and get the opportunities to do it, you feel more comfortable, you learn how to do it. And I think it was the youth that, that I was more scared of. And as I've advanced and I've been lucky to do so and, and get some bigger opportunities, yeah, more people are going to recognize you a little bit and say, hey, he looks like me or, or hey, that name sounds familiar. And, you know, for whatever reason it may be, whether it's a religious thing, whether it's a, a racial thing, just just to identify with somebody. I've still I, I still don't look at it like that, because to me, I just I just go do the job. And then I go home or I go to the next job and I do that and then I go home. But, you know, I'm, if, if that's the case and people say, hey, I appreciate that someone that looks like me or or has a similar background or a similar story is doing this, then you know what? That's great. And I'm happy to talk to anybody about it. I'm talk to, I'm happy to talk about it at any time. Cause you know, you don't get to determine how people perceive you. All you can do is do the best job you can and, and give the best possible impression that you can give and, and see how people react to it. If they react to it at all. And if they react positively to it, great. Or if they have questions, no problem. I'm, I'm happy to be a part of whatever, they want me to be a part of because like I said, it's a, it's a lucky gig and, and you don't get to control what, uh, what people think of you and, and what they perceive in you. All you can do is try to put the best foot forward, whether it's in your work or your demeanor or whatever it may be. Is there a moment or a time period where you felt like you were finally comfortable with your voice or had the confidence enough in each broadcast to go into it without having to fear any mistakes or having any worries? Or is it also one of those, if you work 10,000 hours, you finally get good at something type of things? I'm a big 10,000 hours guy. I'm a big, big uh, believer in the Gladwell theory of that. You know, I do think it takes reps and I do think it takes 
a, a certain amount of time to reach a point in the learning curve where you feel, feel comfortable. I don't think it's necessarily the same for everybody. I mean, I've got friends of mine in this business and I'll, I mean, I'll say it, Joe Davis, who I mentioned earlier is one of my, one of my great friends and same thing with, uh, with Wayne Randazzo. Uh, you know, Joe's obviously the excellent voice of the Dodgers now and, and does a phenomenal job for Fox and, Wayne does a bunch of games for Big Ten Network and does NFL games nationally and is one of the voices of the New York Mets. And I was always envious of them the last, you know, we've known each other for about a decade or so. We've, we've all been friends. And, and every time I'd listen to them, I'd go, how are you guys this good without the reps? Like, and, and not to say that they haven't put the work in or put the reps in, but it, it, I always felt like it came so naturally to them. And for me, it was, it didn't feel very natural. It felt more mechanical. And for a long time, I had to figure out how to tweak and adjust and fine tune. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you. I, I've, I've, I've had opportunities to, to do a lot of games and I feel comfortable in certain sports, but I don't think I really figured out what I was going to sound like for a long time until maybe this last year. And, it, and a, a lot of it has to do with, getting put into positions to call some bigger games uh, to work with different producers who have some wisdom to, to give and to share. And, and they gave me some great advice. And then to understand that a lot of what we do is superfluous because at the end of the day, what a fan truly cares about is the game. And your job is to make it simple informative, entertaining, and absorbable as well. That's the other thing that I, I think it took me a long time to realize. Like a broadcast is only as good as what the listener on radio or the viewer at home on their couch can process. And if you're jamming it and overloading and talking too fast and providing too much detail, they may not walk away with a real understanding of what's happening. They might they might have their brain pulling them in different directions because you're not giving them a direction to go down. And I, until this last year, I, I didn't really understand that. And over the course of this last year, I've really grown to understand that and start to appreciate that and apply that more. I'm not there yet. It's going to be a while. I'm still pretty new in this. You know, I'm going into my eighth year working at ESPN and I've done a lot of games, but it's not nearly where I feel like it needs to be. Uh, but I'm, I'm getting there and I'm starting to figure it out now. And I'm finally starting to get more comfortable with, with me as a broadcaster. You mentioned the importance of reps and that also helps with developing the preparation or how much you think preparation should go into a game. And I have seen you say that you once put all of your notes into a Word document, double space, much like you would for a term paper, and it got to yeah. around 40 pages worth of preparation. I can say that I do not come close to that for this podcast, <laughs> even though there are a couple pages. If you did, I would imagine you probably had like my tax records or something. Well, yeah, like and point, we would so. need probably eight or nine more hours to finish the podcast. <laughs> I figured we would keep it a little short for the listeners. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember taking taking everything on my spotting board for a college football game and, and just putting it into that Word document and going, wow, this is a lot. And I don't plan on stopping that anytime soon. Uh, I think to me, for me to feel comfortable, confident going into a game, uh, especially uh, in a sport that's so massive like college football, whether it's the history of it, whether it's the appreciation, the knowledge of the fan. I mean, the fans know so much now. 
uh, because of their access. They have access to a lot of the same stuff we do. It's not like we're telling them a bunch of brand new things every single night. Uh, that's just not the case. So I think my understanding of it, and, and this has been part of the, the entire process of what I've learned in the last year if, and, and how I've grown to finally feel comfortable in my own skin, it's going into all these broadcasts with that same level of preparation and that same attention to the details. But what has changed is my delivery. And, and I don't think you can start to slack on the preparation just because a philosophy changes in terms of how much you want to speak. I've grown to, to understand that, I, like I said, I feel like a lot of what we do is superfluous. So when I speak, I want it to mean something, whether it's a short, informative nugget, or even if it's just saying somebody's name so that a fan understands who that player is. Uh, that's still important, but I think a lot of the extra stuff we do is superfluous. I do radio and television for football every single week, just about, and I've had a tendency in past years to really uh, have my radio call almost bleed into my television call, and it becomes a little bit of nonstop talking. So I've really tried to adjust my television style to be a little bit more slow-paced, to be a little bit more impactful to be more efficient and concise and i think the the tendency is well i'm not talking as much so i don't need to prep as much and i really don't think that's the case uh you know the old adage is you're only going to use x percent of your preparation and that's going to vary between whatever broadcaster you talk to you know it might be 10 percent for one guy one guy might say 20 might one guy might say five one person might say you know 25, whatever it may be. And obviously the game dictates a lot of it. You're going to use more of it if the game is out of control and you have to dive into more stories and anecdotal material, whatever it may be. But I think realizing that everything I need is at my fingertips, but I want to be in control of how much I really use. I want to really put myself in a fan's perspective and think, do I really need to know this if I'm sitting on my couch? Do I really need to know this? And do I really need to know this right now? Is it truly pertinent? Or can I put that in my back pocket and say, you know what? Let's wait until this player does something big. And then I can hit a fan with the story or the anecdote that I came prepared with. And then maybe it's that much more impactful. The, the, the philosophy I've really started to live by or try to live by uh, over the last year, and I hope to continue it, is five to ten. To me, it's about five to ten great moments in a game where you as a play-by-play announcer have to be on top of it at your best and the most impactful that you're going to be that night. And that doesn't necessarily just mean five to ten calls, but five to ten moments. It might be two or three huge calls in a big game. And then there may be one big rule explanation that you have to deliver perfectly when a fan is going to be at their most confused, but you're able to delineate and distinguish what the scenario is so that a fan understands, oh, that's what happened. And then it might be one or two great stories that you deliver at just the right time that really makes a fan sit up and go, wow, I did not know that about this player. That's awesome. I'm going to remember that one. And you only have so many of those moments in a two to three and a half hour window because the fans' attention span is also short. They want to they be 
entertained by other things. There's other games going on. Uh, they've got families. They've got homework. They've got work to take care of. There's other things happening. So you really want to pick your spots to be impactful. And in those spots, you have to be perfect. And I mean on it, whether it's the delivery, whether it's the call, whatever it may be. And the rest of the time, as long as you're factually accurate and you're palatable in your delivery and you're making the other players in this play with you, the broadcast with you, the producer, director, analyst, reporter, you're making them the forefront of all of it, then you're doing the job right, I think. And I think that's a philosophy that I want to live by a little bit more and try to really iron that into my head. The problem is you never know what those five to ten moments are going to be, so you got to be prepared for all of them. And, and that's where that preparation process has to stay steadfast. Well, and off the top of your head, follow-up to that, is there an anecdote or a stat from a player or a game or a moment that you remember being so excited to use and didn't get the chance to? Now is a good platform to get that out if there ever has <laughs> been one in any sport. Man, uh, you know, the only thing that's tough about that is uh, trying to, you know, you compartmentalize so much from game to game and you kind of tend to forget or put a bunch of stuff on the back burner. But I can think of one that I really regret not using. I mean, I really regret because I think it would have been really good in the moment. And it was this past football season. We were in Berkeley, California. We were doing Cal, Washington State. Washington State came in 6-0. and They were number eight in the country two weeks off of a uh, impressive upset over USC and we had them on the road uh, and it was Friday the 13th. Clemson was playing Syracuse before our Pac-12 game. Clemson lost that night. That was the night that Kelly Bryant got hurt and, and Syracuse pulled off an upset of number two Clemson. And then we had another unbeaten top 10 team on the road and Cal just put the beating on Washington State that night. And Ross Bowers, who had never run for a touchdown in his Cal career, from I want to say about 15 to 20 yards out, dropped back to pass, had nothing downfield. So he takes off for the end zone. And about the two or three yard line, he goes airborne. And I mean leaps high with his momentum going forward. And a defender for Washington State had dove at him to try to tackle him and made contact with his lower half. And that propelled him further forward in midair. So he ends up pulling off a complete somersault into the end zone for his first career rushing touchdown. And it was an incredible play. It was the play of the night. It was the play of the weekend. And I felt really good about the call. We were right on top of it as a production crew. And the one thing that we forgot to add on the backside when we came back from commercial break was that his mom is the Washington gymnastics coach. How did we miss that? That is that is awful. I was like, I didn't realize it until my producer and my analyst and reporter and I were playing pool at a bar in Berkeley after the game and just kind of standing around and, and uh, hanging out and talking about the broadcast. And we go, how did we forget that? That would have been the perfect story to add in that moment. And I was so disappointed in myself that we didn't, bust that out on the other side, especially because it was a blowout game at that point. It's not like we would have been missing anything truly impactful in the game. So that's one that 
that really does nag me a little bit, man. I, I, I wish we would have got a chance to share that. Well, you know what? We're going to put that into an audiogram. Tag Ross <laughs> on Twitter. Tag all the football parties that need to be involved and get that out there for him and his mother. So we're good. We're going to get it out there somewhere, somehow. Perfect. Awesome. So we have to bring up, of course, one of the calls. Fortunately, two of the calls, actually, that went incredibly viral dealing with the NCAA women's tournament this past season when Arike Agumbawale, bet you didn't think I would get that right, but since I'm a producer <laughs> for ACC Radio, I have yep, to. absolutely. Two buzzer beaters, two incredible moments, back-to-back games, almost a broadcaster's dream, and we get to see that with the announcer's cam that was enacted, and we get to see your reaction happen live to both of those calls. I don't even want to pose a question here. I can just give you the broadcasting terrible question of tell us about that moment for you, those moments. What went into that call? If there was even anything you could have come up with for that call. What I find great about both of them is, as you mentioned, they're incredibly succinct. They tell you everything that happens, and you get a great moment to let breathe once it's actually done happening. And they, they really made the tournament worthwhile, even on top of how impressive those shots were to beat one of the best programs in the past two decades or so and to win a national championship the way they did. Looking back now, what can you say about what those moments meant to you? I mean, it, it is a broadcaster's dream. You hope, you, you hope every game has those types of stakes and it has that type of drama and it has that type of finish and I'll forever be linked with Arike for that. And I have no problem with that. And obviously she's a great kid too. Like, uh, you know, she's a phenomenal player, but a, a great kid. And uh, I'm proud to be linked to her for the rest of my career. Now, we should mention, uh, though, it might be a little bit of cheating because you did cover her brother at Wisconsin that's football. True. So you already yep. knew the last name. <laughs> it couldn't have really happened to a better broadcaster as well. I, I was going to say, if, if anybody was the right guy for that, I think I was right because <laughs> I, cover, I covered a lot of, uh, I, I shouldn't say a lot, but maybe three or four of Dare's games when he was playing running back for Wisconsin. So I had that name ingrained into my head and I covered Arike when she was uh she was in high school a little bit too so I had a sense for her and I knew her and I knew her family a little bit so uh I felt comfortable with saying her name as often as humanly uh, necessary but uh I, I I you want every game to have that you know you would love if every game had that had that signature moment and that's all you really want and every game does have that uh for the most part each game is going to have a signature moment in, in the story of it but to have it at that moment, in the final moment, in the biggest moment, in the biggest stage, uh, I think that's, that's every broadcaster's dream. So obviously it means a lot that I got to be a part of that. But, you know, you, you fall backwards into those things. You have no control as to whether or not the game is going to be great. And, and you just hope that when the big moment comes, you're ready for it. And, and I think we were ready for it as a crew. Um, there's not a lot of training for that, certainly. Uh, you know, you, you only get so many opportunities to do games like that. And, and when you have an opportunity like that, all you want to do is, is not screw it up. And for me, the moments should speak for themselves. And I, I, I'd like to think that for the most part, the shot is going to be what's remembered, not necessarily the call. And I'm fine with that. But if people remember the call is, you know, like I said, like you said, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't complex. It wasn't, uh, anything overly flowery. It was just calling the moment and trying to give it the, the inflection and the volume and, 
and the tenor that it's due because of the magnitude of the moment. So for me, it was just about getting it right and then getting out of the way because then it's time for the athletes to be celebrated and it's time for the coaches to be celebrated. and It's time for the fans uh, expressions to really dictate how the moment is perceived and to see the opposition's faces, to see how they're reacting to it, because that's the other side of the story. And I don't want to get in the way of that. And, and nor did Carol Lawson or Rebecca Lobo, my, my two analysts on that show either, because all three of us in those moments know that you only get to see those moments happen live once. And they knew as much as I did that we didn't want to get in the way of those moments. So when we called it, we got out of the way. When it was time to recap and replay, we did, we, we did our jobs as we typically would. But uh, I just wanted to call it and get out of the way. And I'm glad I didn't screw up the name. I'm glad I, I for the most part, didn't screw up the call. As, as, you know, it's a subjective thing. Some fans may like it. Some may hate it. I don't know. But I feel like I, at the very least, made a, made a correct call and gave it its moment with, with some volume and inflection and some dramatics and theatrics. And then I, I said, that's it. That's it for me. It's time for me to shut up and get out of the way. I don't know, man. Kara looks pretty pissed when it happened. So <laughs> must not have been that exciting. She was not enthused. <laughs> you know what that's called for people? That's called doing your job because she's looking around at everything that's happening as to what yep. to say next when it's her turn. Yeah, she and she's so locked in. I mean, that's Kara. You know, Kara's, Kara's got the poker face and she's as focused and, and locked in as anybody. And that's her style. And that's great. And it's a great partner to have. Rebecca is a little bit more incredulous and that speaks to her personality too. Like people are like, Oh, they must be upset. Well, no, just cause they didn't react the way you reacted or the way that I reacted doesn't mean that they're not reacting in some way or that they don't appreciate the magnitude of the moment. It's just how they process it. And, and again, Kara, you know, we were talking about it afterwards. She's like, I'm, I still got to look around. I want to, I want to be able to reference something or I want to be able to, you know, if we show a replay of, uh, of the face of Victoria Vivian's in that moment, I want to look at Victoria's face and see how she's feeling. Uh, Rebecca, the same thing. She's a bubbly, bright personality who reacts like I do. And she was incredulous in that moment. And I think it took everything for her not to just scream, oh, my God, when, when the shot went down. But she did it and reacted in the way that our personalities allow for us to react and then we did our jobs. And, and again, I, I, I like it. I, I think there's more pros than cons. Yeah, some, of us, some fans are going to be, you know, make assumptions, broad-based assumptions based on their very limited, re, you know, knowledge of bottom body language or whatever, which is fine. It's all part of the gig. When, when you're put on camera and you react, people are going to comment on that. That's okay. It, it beats the alternative of not getting to do the game. <laughs> like, well, I'm happy to do it if that's what it means. Uh, but I, I feel like that's just our personalities and we react like human beings. Uh, we react differently just the way everybody else does. And, and that's, that's what I love the most about that moment. It's what I love about those two. Um, you know, I, I, I made sure to take a moment with both of them. Uh, after that shot went down You know, I gave Kara, you know, Kara turned to me and was basically like putting her fist out to give me a bump. And, and I grabbed her fist and put it, put my arm on her shoulder and, and then put my arm on Rebecca's shoulder and squeezed it. And I was just happy to be with them. And, and obviously Holly as well. Holly Rowe, our incredible reporter, uh, who was right in the fray of that immediately when, when and she had the chance to be. I, I just wanted them to know how much I appreciated that moment. And I was glad that we all got to experience that together in our own ways. And, and then we came back together as a team to, to finish out the broadcast and, 
I was thrilled to just be a part of that moment with them. Many people in the sports broadcasting community knew what you were going through leading up to the NCAA tournament, leading up to that moment. Some fans may not know that your father unfortunately passed away three weeks before this all ended up happening. And you've written a, a great piece in the past on Father's Day about him in 2015, calling him the dark-skinned Superman, and go on to say how important he was for you, not only as a father, but as someone who was your biggest fan in your career and someone that always listened to you, even though he may not have had a huge interest in whatever game it might have been covering. <laughs> how important was it for you to get back on the horse, in a sense, for that tournament, to get back in the grind and go back to work and sort of do so from him? And in a way, he rewards you with two buzzer beaters if you really want to look at it that way so yeah. to be able to go back to your job even with dealing with that moment what was that like for you yeah I remember uh, a couple of days after uh, he passed and it's uh it's uh Islamic custom that you perform the burial typically the day after and uh after a passing and we actually held off a day so that my oldest brother could make it back from Canada he lives in Vancouver and so so within two days we had buried him and it was, I was a train wreck and, and I, I don't think anybody would, you know, think less of me or anything like that. I'm sure a lot of people would feel the same way if put in that spot. And I was, I was miserable and I didn't want to feel miserable anymore. So five days after, uh, I, I, I guess it was four days after we buried him. I was, I was in Minnesota and I was on the mic for Timberwolves warriors on ESPN radio because I didn't want to be miserable. And this is something that in terms of a job that obviously is, is a great gig and it's uh, a, a one that you're, that you don't take for granted because a lot of people would love to have it. But for me, it's also something I really do enjoy and it's something I really love doing. And my father loved it. He loved that I, I got to do this as a job. And when I first got into broadcasting and told my dad, I think I wanted to do it. He was the guy that was really, super supportive and not to say my my mom wasn't or my brothers weren't it's nothing like that they were just a little more skeptical they they probably weren't uh maybe as whimsical about the job as i was you know and my dad was was very supportive and just said listen if you want to do it go do it just don't half-ass you know like like if you're gonna do it go out and, and go be great at it and you know obviously that's a subjective thing whether whether that's the case or not and I'm, i don't think that that should really be a concern for me, I just want to go out and do the job and do it well and then go home. But he really took a lot of pride and joy in, in the fact that I got to do this for a living and to, to do something that I love doing, which, which made me happy, which I think in turn made him happy. So I, I, didn't, want to, I didn't want to sit around and mope anymore. So I, I, I went to Minneapolis and did that game. And I remember flying home that night on that Sunday night and just kind of feeling, all right, it was, it was okay. It, was, it, it felt all right. Um, but I wasn't convinced. And, you know, a day later, my, my boss, Pat Lowry, uh, my, my coordinating producer for college basketball for the women's side, uh, asked me, do you want to do the first and the second rounds? Because if you don't, it's okay. I'm, I'm happy to give and, and everybody at ESPN was so great. Uh, and, and just in general, the whole sports broadcasting community was phenomenal. Uh, I couldn't have asked for more. Uh, you know, I, I just, I appreciated how supportive everybody was, but especially my bosses, they said, listen, man, if you got to go, don't hesitate. Like just tell us and we'll, we'll work around. We'll find somebody 
and you tell us when you're ready. And if you're not ready, then you know what? You don't have to. You don't have to do anything. And I, I gave it a little bit of time before I, I responded. And I just said, you know what? Put me down because I don't, I don't, I don't want to mope around. And, and my dad was the hardest working guy I knew, you know, immigrant uh, to the United States when he was 40 years old, uh, you know, educated man vice president of a bank in Pakistan and then came to the United States for a better chance for his wife and kids and worked manual labor and worked in a factory to save enough money for seven years so that he could bring the rest of the family over. And then I was born in this country and, and I grew up with his work ethic. I hope, um, he was, he was the smartest and hardest working guy I knew. And he wouldn't, he, he, I don't, I don't want to over dramatize and say he'd be ashamed if I didn't go back to work or something like that. But there was a part of me that was thinking, man, dad wouldn't want you to sit around and be, you know, just be sad about everything that's going on. He'd go, go do your job, go do something that makes you happy. And, and I said, Larry, Hey, let's, let's just mark me down. I'm in, send me wherever you need to send me. We're going to, we're going to start this tournament. And if I'm going to be part of this and I'm going to do the final four for the first time and, and all that, I want to do it right. And I want to be a part of it from start to finish. And that was the attitude I felt like I needed to have. And that's the attitude I took to the first round. And, and we had a great tournament together as a team. And I was so happy that it was that team that I was with. And in fact, it was that team that was with me the night my dad died. The night I found out uh, that he had passed away, it was those, those people that were with me, that, that whole broadcast team and that production crew. And they, they helped me get through the longest month of my life. And I didn't want to sit around and, and wait for something to make me feel better. I said, I don't feel like, I, I don't want to feel like this anymore. So I went out and went back to work because that, that made me happy. You know, I, I, I could lean on my TV family. And I don't, I don't know about spirituality or religion because it's, it, it's different for everybody. I have my own thoughts and feelings about both of those things and it's individual for everyone. And I may not be the most, uh, hardened religious guy it may not be the most whimsically spiritual guy but i'm i'm convinced that you know pop had something to do with with those three games in in columbus and you know i'm a pretty rational and logical guy but a part of me really believes that he had something to do with that and if that's the case uh or if it's not the case i'm happy to believe that it is so it was uh it was a really therapeutic way for me to to get back to what i what i what i normally was I wanted to wrap things up with you with some quick hitting questions for um, what we've talked about to some fun ones in what I call easy or pass. And you can <laughs> certainly pass on anything, but I think they'll be easier enough. The first one is, do your older brothers ever bust you about your first name? They, uh, they haven't busted me in a long time. The fact <laughs> is that they, they're the ones that named me. So I, I, I love the fact that my name's Adam because my brothers named me Adam. You know, they all have very traditional Pakistani names and, and strong, you know, names with, with great religious significance. And, uh, my mom wanted to name me after my dad, Muhammad, ironically enough. And my brothers have been going to the, going to school in the United States for about a year when I was born. And they had already kind of gone through the, uh, you know, typical, uh, 19, mid 1980s, uh, ridicule, uh, for their names and for their accents and things like that. And they all decided, you know, I don't think we should put him through that. <laughs> I think we should make it a little easier on him. So they, they gave me my name. They gave me Adam and my mom liked it. And 
I, uh, I think, uh, I owe them a little bit, uh, a little bit for that. And they, they don't bust me on it, but, uh, I, I know they take a lot of pride in it too. Are you still getting confused for other ESPN personalities like Adnan Verk or Amin El Hassan? Has that passed yet or will that probably continue? That's probably going to continue. <laughs> I get confused with uh, Amin El Hassan on Twitter probably the most. And in person, I get uh, confused for Adnan probably the most. So, uh, which is fine by me at the end of the day because you know what? Nobody, nobody means any harm by it. Uh, every, it's all in good fun, and, and people, have, people have turned it into a running joke, and, and all of us have turned it into a running joke, too. And we, the fact is, if people are, are talking about you in, in a way like that, and they mean well, they, uh, at least they're watching, at least they recognize you in some way, shape, or form, and, and it's, uh, it's no big deal. Do you correct people, speaking of first names, if they get Iron Eagle's name incorrectly? I, I do. I have to. Uh, I, I, feel, I feel obligated with, uh, with as big of an influence as Ian has had on me my entire career and continues to have a huge influence on me. Uh, I would feel uh, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, at least stand up for the honor uh, of, his, uh, of his very special first name. Speaking of ages, the big league last year did a 40 under 40, and you were ranked 23, which was ahead of friend of the show, George Sedano, which you could probably bust him on whenever you'd like to. <laughs> Jesus and Mero, who had their season finale, they were ranked below yep. you. Mina Kimes, Dominique Foxworth, Clinton Yates. There's a couple names on there that aren't too bad but what's interesting is you're tied at 23rd with joe davis are you okay with that do you think that maybe you should have a rock paper scissors contest to really see who's better how is that going to be worked out i i I think we're just fine uh with that and and i know uh my buddy ryan rucco was in in the mix for that as well and uh, we and we all had a good laugh about it together uh those are two tremendously talented people and and i will never shy away from being mentioned in the same company as, as two other talented people. I have no problem with that. Ryan's a tremendous broadcaster and a great dude. Uh, you know, we, we've exchanged messages a lot and we both have kind of similar philosophies about life and broadcasting and how we approach the job. And, and like I said, Joe's one of the best friends I've ever had. And I was lucky enough to actually see him and, and meet his daughter finally after a couple of years, uh, uh, last week, uh, had his, had her second birthday party here in Chicago. And, uh, when the Dodgers were in town playing the Cubs and I got to see him and his family and, and his wonderful wife, Libby. And, uh, you know, Joe, I was in Joe's wedding and when the day comes, Joe will be in mine because he's, he, he's one of the biggest reasons I think I've gotten to where I've gotten to because we pushed each other and encouraged each other and criticized each other and made each other better. And I, I hope that he feels a little bit of that in his career and his day-to-day life that I had some influence in a positive way on him. Cause I certainly feel that way about him. So I'll never shy away from, uh, from being uh, associated with two talented people. like Well, that. if the names are written alphabetically, you've got it first. Exactly. Uh, That's frankly all I care about. I, uh, more <laughs> often than not, I'm going to win out in that regard. I got no problem with that. The most important accessory item for you during a broadcast, if that's a highlighter or a multicolored pen or an erasable pen, what is it? It is the multicolored pen, undoubtedly, because uh, especially with calling as much NBA as I call, uh, you know, I, I want to know if LeBron's putting together a, a crazy fourth quarter and the, that means that his numbers are in red at that point. Uh, I want to know 
when, uh, you know, a team had its largest lead. And if that was in the second quarter, that means that uh, it's in blue. So I want to know those things. Uh, I use it. I use that multicolored pen for baseball, for softball. Uh, I use it for football to delineate quarters. That that thing is uh, very, very important to the process of, of uh, calling a game for me. So I love that thing. I wanted to get a story from you that people don't already know or haven't already been asked. There's the Mac Brown Uber driver story. There's him leaving the booth during one of your broadcasts with like 10 minutes to go in a game that was decided on a last second field goal. He missed the ending. That's a shame. There's the joke. Would you remember what Fred Taylor looks like on the sideline now if if he were to be shown because of that somewhat famous broadcast. I did see on an AMA, though, that you said one of your best games or one of the games you look back on was one of the first hoops games you ever called with Bill Raftery. And it was more so for the Manhattan Post game. Quote, I don't remember much. Now, I'm trying to get a story from you if Bill Raftery has some, like, great bar tale or something you could share that maybe people don't already know. I will, uh, I will happily divulge, and it's not one I tell very often because legitimately I don't necessarily remember all of the details. <laughs> but uh, the night I did my one and only, in fact, game with Bill Raftery, and I'm so happy I got, got it when I did, I still have uh, the press pass from that game. It's hanging up in a frame on my wall because it was the first game I ever called at Madison Square Garden. It was January the 3rd, 2012. It was a Tuesday night. I was filling in, and I can't remember for the life of me actually now who the play-by-play guy was supposed to be on that game, but I uh, ended up having to fill in, and it was Louisville and St. John's, and Ian Eagle, of course, uh, is tremendously close with Bill Raftery and did Nets games for years with him and has continued to do CBS college basketball with him, and I, I asked Ian, hey, what's it like working with Raf? He's like, don't worry about it. He's the easiest guy in the world. He's the most well-prepared. And all those things are true. And Ian may have, you know, gave him the soft sell on, oh, this is, this is a, a kid that I'm, I'm fond of. I work with him. He's, he's a good broadcaster. He's working his way up. You know, take care of him. So I don't know what take care of him meant. Uh, maybe Bill Raftery thought it meant something different because uh, – uh, we, we had a blast that night. It wasn't a particularly close game. And uh, Louisville was playing a 2-3 zone that night. So I didn't really get the true man-to-man. But he kind of adjusted it, I think, just for me. He said, Adam Amin, the Louisville Cardinals go 2-3 zone with NRM principles. And I was very excited that he, that he at least took that step. I don't even know if they were playing with man-to-man principles. But I feel like he did that just for me a little bit. And the game was over. We go back out on the, on the 33rd uh, outside of Madison Square Garden, right in front of Lenny's, where Lenny's used to be. And uh, I go, Rap, it was such a pleasure working with you. And, and I, I, you know, it was, it was an honor. I can't believe I finally got to do it again. And he cuts me off. And he goes, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever, kid. And he grabs me by the back of my neck and flings me into this cab that I think just magically appeared out of nowhere. It might have been a phantom cab of some sort. But he flings me into the back of this cab. And he goes, you know where to go. And he tells the driver that. He just goes, you know where to go. We end up, I think it was at PJ Clark's somewhere in Manhattan. And I'm about to walk through the front door of PJ Clark's. And he goes, ah, rookies. And I look and he's going around the side towards like the back door, the side door. I'm like, oh, okay. So I start following him there. 
and it's like a secret entrance going through the kitchen and he knows all the bus boys and and uh you know the owner of course and we go upstairs to like this private room and uh, there's like 20 of his friends there and all of a sudden there's a beer in front of me waiting and i think that was the first of many that night and uh it was just an incredible experience to be part of the legend that is Bill Raftery. And I don't remember what time I got back to the hotel that night, but I had a 6 a.m. flight the next day, not home, but to Washington, D.C., because the next night I had to do my very first top 25 college basketball game in my ESPN career, Marquette and Georgetown. And a game that went right down to the wire. And I had to call that game essentially with a hangover because of Bill Raftery the night before. Uh, and, and somehow we got through it and it was a great game. And, and, uh, and that was one of those uh, memorable nights that I feel like is now past the statute of limitations that I can speak freely about it at this point when it's now seven years later. Well, that is what you call a mic drop, ladies and gentlemen. I don't think there's any <laughs> better way to end a podcast than talking about Bill Raftery out in public at a bar and having to be hung over for one of the biggest games of your career because of him, but doing it successfully. One of many, I'm sure, which all broadcasters <laughs> go through. We, we can't hold anything against him for that. He was just getting you prepared. Exactly, and, and, and that's all part of the, uh, the, the growth and learning process of, uh, of doing the job. And, and again, it's... It's just one of those things where you can look back and go, I can't believe that I got to do that with that guy at that place. Uh, I can't believe I get to do this for a living. It's, it's nights like that that you can reflect back on and think of, you know, when, when you're going through the grind of the job and you're exhausted after a long year or after a long week or you're, you know, you're muscling together, you know, nine games in 13 days and you haven't seen your girlfriend or you haven't seen your husband or your wife or your kids. Uh, whatever it, what the situation may be and you're feeling tired, I, I do feel like this business does give you those moments to reflect back on and, and think positively about this and remember why you love doing this job so much. Adam, thank you so much for your extended time to tell many of the tales that you've been able to go through as a broadcaster. I think a lot of people know your voice as they should from the many different platforms they've been able to hear you on, but it's something as well to get to hear more about what you do than just what your voice sounds like calling what they're able to see or what they can picture in their mind. So I thank you again for peeling back the curtain a little bit, sharing some of your tales and continued success on everything. I know that you're going to get to cover the Chicago Bears preseason games, which is a childhood favorite team of yours. So maybe you can take some of that like mega cast fandom that you're able to experience <laughs> when the former players come back and get excited when they get to cover Alabama and they went there. Maybe since it's the preseason, they'll let you do that a little bit and show some of your fandom for the bears. I don't think they should have a problem. No, I don't think anybody's going to have a problem with that. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to being a part of that. It's just, uh, another, uh, another fun opportunity that, uh, that, that, that you're lucky to do. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it, man. Thanks. Well, we'll keep track of everything you have going on and definitely won't have to look far to find you as the seasons come about and definitely enjoy some rest and relaxation for the rest of the summer. We can say that at least. Appreciate it, John. Thanks so much, bud. Thanks again to Adam for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print, and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. 
Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe once again faced down his fears and demons attending a horror film and will break down Hereditary which Rotten Tomatoes describes, When Ellen, the matriarch of the grand family, passes away, her daughter's family begins to unravel cryptic and increasingly terrifying secrets about their ancestry. The more they discover, the more they find themselves trying to outrun the sinister fate they seem to have inherited. Hereditary unleashes a nightmare vision of a domestic breakdown that exhibits craft and precision, transforming a familial tragedy into something ominous and deeply disquieting, and pushing the horror movie into chilling new terrain with its shattering portrait of heritage gone to hell. You can find Joe on Twitter at DukeMish, that's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Yeah! Woo! What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. You guys must be so proud of me. I ordinarily average zero horror movies a year. However, in the first six months of 2018, I've seen two. First, A Quiet Place, and now, Hereditary. With the movie coming from the acclaimed studio A24, there was no question the movie would be solid. But I didn't know what to expect, and clearly audiences didn't either. Hereditary is playing well with the critics, hitting a certified fresh 90% Rotten Tomatoes against a 56% audience score. Tack on a D-plus cinema score, and it seems as though mainstream audiences didn't get what they wanted. I don't like horror movies, but I do at the very least respect a good movie, no matter the genre. Let's go to the tape and see what we're in for. The best part of the movie is Tony Collette's Oscar-worthy performance. Yes, I mean Oscar-worthy. It's way too early in the year to guarantee her a spot in the Best Actress category, but it's one of the best performances of the year so far. She shifts emotions expertly, showing her unbelievable acting range within the framework of a two-hour film. But Collette is an Oscar-nominated actress, so a strong performance from her is nothing out of the ordinary. The actor who played her son, Alex Wolfe, giving a spectacular performance, that was unexpected. He has one scene in particular where he is absolutely phenomenal. He also has to capture multiple personas starting off the movie as simply a stoner teenager, but he keeps up with the character as the layers increase. They're really the two stars that elevate the film, but the rest of the acting is also solid. Which of course is a credit to the director, Ari Aster, who I've never heard of, but he clearly knew what he was doing. A bad horror movie goes for cheap jump scares and tries to create constant in-your-face fright. Hereditary is a slow burn, giving it time to be a movie. Aster takes his solid script, which is pretty airtight despite its intricacies, and essentially creates a playground for himself. The key set to the movie is the house where the family lives. It's an open set that allows the camera to maneuver through the house. It makes it easier for the longer takes and limited cuts, keys to creating terror. The effects are haunting, but the key is the restraint. There are no constant jump scares. There are no cliche fake-out jump scares. I don't know that there are any jump scares, come to think of it. 
Hereditary doesn't need to use those cheap tricks. It creates sheer terror with its plot, camera work, and acting. The problem for fans of the horror genre is that it takes a while to develop. This movie is two hours and seven minutes. It's metaphorical. It's deep. It takes time to build. By ordinary horror movie standards, this movie is slow. That could be why general audiences aren't so pleased. But the movie is great, and the last ten minutes are absolutely terrifying. And don't get me wrong, the horror builds throughout, but Hereditary is not a thrill ride. Hence, critics like it. Audiences, not so much. The bottom line, Hereditary is a great movie with an Oscar-worthy leading performance from Tony Collette and a strong supporting performance from Alex Wolfe. Harry Astor's direction and writing are brilliant. The use of the effects are limited, but effective when used. I commend the film's restraint and limiting of horror movie cliches. It's really tough to find a flaw. This is a great movie, but you have to be into it. You can't just go in casually expecting a fun horror thriller, because this isn't that. It has a lot of substance and probably requires a second viewing at least. I looked up spoiler reviews and hereditary explain videos on YouTube to get a better understanding of what I just saw. Taking out the subtext, it works on its own, but hereditary also works as a metaphor to mental health. As far as that second viewing I was talking about earlier, I will not be partaking because this movie is disturbing and I don't want to experience it again. It's still not my cup of tea, but I do like the place the horror movie genre is in. There are great horror movies pretty much every year now. With the horror aspect attached, I'm out on most occasions. But when it comes to Hereditary, if you like expert filmmaking and horror aspects don't bug you, then you should be in. I'll compare Hereditary to signing that one-year veteran that helps your team win a championship. And this is very specific to me. I will forever appreciate and respect Hereditary. I'm fine with its acclaim and possible awards in its future. It deserves it, but seeing it the one time is enough for me. Sexy. Check! Good. Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.